You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Good morning, America. This is Pete Mecca, your host for a veteran story on AmericasWebRadio.com. Let's travel back in time today, day after Pearl Harbor, December 8th, 1941. Mr. Speaker, the President of the United States, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Thank you, Mr. Vice President and Mr. Speaker. And ladies and gentlemen of the United States Senate and House of Representatives, Yesterday, December the 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy, the United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. This attack on our bases in the Hawaiian Islands caused severe damage to our naval and military forces. I regret to tell you that very many American lives have been lost. I, as Commander-in-Chief of the Army and the Navy, have ordered all measures be taken in our defense. But always, as a whole nation, will we remember the character of this onslaught against us. And no matter how long it may take us to overcome this vicious and premeditated invasion, the United States, in its righteous might, will win through absolute victory. I believe I interpret the will of the Congress and our people when I say that we will defend ourselves to the uttermost. And we will make very certain that never again will such treachery endanger us. With confidence in our armed forces and the un spirit of our people, we will gain the inevitable triumph, so help us God. I ask Congress to declare that since the unprovoked and dastardly attack by Japan on Sunday, December the 7th, 1941, that a state of war has existed between the United States and the Empire of Japan. Thank you, and God bless us all. <laughs> Fantastic. Thank you, Hal. Folks, that was Dr. Hal Raper, Jr., a well-known FDR impersonator retired dentist, and Vietnam veteran. How welcome to the program, sir. Thank you so much. It's wonderful to be with you again, and I enjoyed our times with the World War II Roundtable. 
show. It's a well, great pleasure that. Uh, being with you in voice uh, is, uh, instead of personally, but it's wonderful. Thanks. Oh, uh, uh, you're welcome. You know, uh, uh, you did real good on that speech, considering you're a Southern boy. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, Georgia twang is hard to get rid of, I'll tell you. Uh, <laughs> All right, uh, tell I the folks. up in Warm Springs, Georgia, and lived yeah. on the, uh, the Bolio Foundation that uh, FDR uh, created. So, Pete, if you like, I would talk a little bit about uh, the president and what... Uh, led him to his uh, last days in Warm Springs. Yes, uh, sir. The floor is yours, Hal. Uh, okay. Take it away. Pete Franklin Delano Roosevelt was born uh, back in 1882, January the 30th. Grew up in a very privileged family uh, up on the Hudson River in a little town of Hyde Park. He uh, was pretty much an only child as he had a half-brother that was much older. So uh, he and his mother were very, very close. He was educated in all the fine schools, went to Harvard, got a law degree, didn't care much for practicing law, wanted to go into politics, and did. Uh, became a uh, legislator in New York. And then uh, when President Wilson was elected uh, U.S. president, he was appointed uh, under Secretary of the Navy. Assistant Secretary of the Navy, which he in which he served throughout the Wilson years. Uh, his first real big step in politics was in 1920 when he ran with James Cox, uh, and Cox was running for president, and Franklin Roosevelt was running for vice president of the United States. They lost to Harding and Coolidge. Uh, FDR married uh, his distant distant cousin. Eleanor, uh, in 1900, and uh, they had five children, four of whom survived. And uh, Eleanor was with him for the rest of his days, and sometimes uh, spirit only. Uh, after World War One and uh, his run for the presidency, he had he practiced law in New York, uh, and he had a tragedy that really hit him. And that was, uh, he came down with polio in 1921, the fall, and spent the next several years fighting to regain the use of his legs. And that's what brought him to Georgia. He had heard of a warm spring down in Georgia that helped a young boy from Columbus uh, regain the use of his legs after swimming in that water for a couple of summers. FDR came down to Georgia, to Warm Springs in October of 1924, liked the place, bought the old rundown summer resort with the springs and 1,200 acres of the prettiest land on Pine Mountain. Uh, and there he uh, worked to work to recover from his polio and help other polios. He established the Georgia Warm Springs Foundation in 1927. And in 1928, he was called back into politics when he ran for the governorship of New York. Uh, he barely won it, and uh, New York's governors only served for two years, and so he ran again in 1930, won by a landslide, and in 1932, ran against Hoover, Herbert Hoover, Hoover excuse me, uh, for the presidency of the United States, and he won. 
He became the longest-serving president, served four terms. He got us through the dark days of the Depression and through World War II. Uh, he was honored by his image being placed on the dime, and millions of people see that dime today, and no one realizes that the origin of that dime was down at Warm Springs because uh, the March of Dimes was originally started to fund the uh, treatment centers at Warm Springs and other places. Uh, we won't go into a lot of details about uh, the politics of the Depression and World War II. We just know what a fabulous leader he was for this country, and he was the only leader who could not stand without assistance. He had polio on his legs, and he could not walk. He could only walk with braces and holding on to someone for support. Uh, about myself, I'm here speaking to you because of FDR. Simple. Huh. I wasn't a product of his romances. I uh, <laughs> am here because my mother came to work at that treatment center for polio as a physical therapist trainee in 1930, came back and worked as a physical therapist. My father came as a young doctor to head the internal medicine department back in 1937. They met, married. I showed up in 1939, just barely under the wire. And so <laughs> I was uh, I was six years old when the president died in Warm Springs. I was living the fourth house away from him at the top of a winding dirt road that went up Pine Mountain. I have some vivid memories of those days that I'll share, but uh, before we do that, maybe you have some other questions. I do. We're, we're approaching our first break here in a couple minutes, but you mentioned, uh, I'm sorry, getting away from the subject here, but you mentioned some kind of a PBS special coming out in April about FDR in Georgia. Tell us about that yeah. a little bit. We're very, very excited uh, the uh, Georgia PBS uh, Public Broadcasting, uh, which is done through Georgia State, has done a film that is based on a, a book by Kay Minshew of LaGrange uh, about FDR's time in Georgia. Uh, we A lot of people know about his Warm Springs time, but he was in many other cities and towns in, in Georgia, and uh, so that's what this special is about. And uh, it's going to premiere private showing on the date of his death, which is April the 12th, which is only a few weeks away, down at the Little White House uh, in Warm Springs. And after that, it will be shown on various PBS, PBS stations throughout the uh, the state. So we're really excited about it. And uh, I even have a, a little bit part describing what I saw when I watched his funeral train pull out. So wow. that, that's going to be a great thing. Uh, All right, that, that that sounds very interesting. How keep in touch with me, and I'll help promote that uh, for you. That that should be very very interesting. Um, we're going to go to our first break right now. We're going to be back with Dr. Hal Raper. Uh, fascinating life living down there in Warm Springs, where President Roosevelt used to visit. Uh, we'll be back in just a, a couple minutes, folks. Stay with us. Hi. This is Rocky Blair, former four-time Super Bowl champion with the Pittsburgh Steelers and Vietnam veteran. 
As a board member, I'd like to talk to you about Warriors to Citizen, a nonprofit organization that helps American heroes, soldiers, police, fire, EMT, and their families recover from the psychological harm caused by career-induced stress. Over the last 20 years, broken relationships have been a major causal factor for the highest document divorce rate and resulting suicides in this population. This program, from Warriors to Citizen, is delivered free to families by professionals, all whom served in uniform and understand the needs to be addressed. I ask for your support. So please, go to our website, warriorstocitizen.org, and find out how you can help, either by making a donation or sharing this information with an American hero that you may know. And thank you. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. Hello, my name is Rick White, and I'm the director of the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame. I want to encourage all Georgia veterans to consider being nominated to the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame. And if you are a Georgia veteran, then the definition of a Georgia veteran is either you were born in the state of Georgia, or you've lived here 10 years, or you were raised your right hand and joined the military in this state, you are considered a Georgia veteran. For further information, go to www.gmbhof.org, or you can contact me at 678-427-0915. We'd love to have your nomination for the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame. Thank you so much. If you live to serve and want to make an even bigger difference, consider joining the U.S. Army. With training in fields like medical care, linguistics, and engineering, an Army career can amplify your efforts with humanitarian opportunities all over the world. Plus, you'll receive competitive pay and incredible benefits, so you'll be taken care of, too. Learn more at GoArmy.com. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. All right. Thank you, David. We're back with Dr. Hal Raper. Uh, Hal, you, you grew up basically at Warm Springs with the president almost. Uh, now, as a kid, did you ever see his dog, Thala? Well, uh, that, that's... Uh... Some of my uh, most vivid memories of that time, uh, I had just turned six years old when he died. Uh, I do remember a couple of visits, but he didn't come much during the war, and of course, I was just a little fella. Uh, but uh, that last visit, when he came down in March of uh, 1945, we went to the uh, railroad, as everybody in Warm Springs did, to greet him when he got off the train. Uh, place was real crowded, so we couldn't get to the station, but we, uh, had a place right on the road where we saw him come by, and I remember how horrible he looked. He was in the back seat of his little open Ford, uh, had on a dark coat and a hat, and he was just slumped forward, and he was ashen white. Even as a little boy, I remember how white he looked, and how everybody let out a, horrible gas as he came by. Uh, didn't see anything else of him during the t- next two weeks. I was there trying to recover from his illness. I don't know if you know or many of your listeners know, but 
uh, the country uh, elected a dying man in 1944. Yeah, he didn't really want to run, but he was determined to see the end of World War II and uh, the beginning of the UN. He was in congestive heart failure. His blood pressure was 240 over 190. They did not have medicines in 1945 to control high blood pressure like they do today. He was a very sick man. But uh, we elected him for that fourth term. So he came to Warm Spring for the purpose of trying to get his health back uh, in March. And he was to stay about three or four weeks and then go to San Francisco to the U.N. But he just looked awful. So I didn't see any more of him, but we lived near the little white house. And uh, in the afternoon, his cousins would walk his little Scotty ter- dog, Fowler, uh, past our house with uh, another dog. And uh, I would go out and pet Fowler. And Fowler was a sweet little dog, uh, world famous because he had such great personality. He was nice and let a little six-year-old kid go out there and play with him and pet him and the other dog, I remember, was kind of snappy and yippy and yappy, and I didn't like him. <laughs> but Fowler uh, was sweet. And the other thing, Pete, now this is a vivid memory. Uh, one of those women had blue hair. There was two of them. It turned out it's his cousin, Laura Delano, I found out. But nowadays, people got purple hair and green hair and orange hair and every color hair in the world. But in 1945, for a little boy in Warm Springs to see a woman with blue hair, that was unusual. Uh, <laughs> I would wait in the afternoons, and I'd say, oh, Mom, here comes Fowler, here comes Fowler. And she would say, okay. And they called me Toby. I said, Toby, you can go out and pet the dog, but don't you say anything about that blue hair. Uh, so that's my main memory. So when you see my hand, that's the last hand in Georgia, probably to pet Fowler. Fowler did oh, live a while. He didn't die until 1952. Uh, oh, wow. My yeah. other memory is the last day, uh, days. FDR died in his uh, little White House on Thursday, April the 12th of 1945. He was sitting in his living room having his portrait painted by a world-famous portrait artist named Madame Elizabeth Schumatoff from uh, New York. She was a friend of Lucy Mercer Rutherford, who had brought her to Warm Springs to paint the FDR picture. He, about her, said, I have a terrific headache and never regained consciousness. He was carried into his bedroom, put in his bed, which is just a few feet away. Uh, he always traveled with a Navy doctor whose name was Howard Bruin, uh, one of the early, early cardiologists. Uh, Bruin was down at the swimming pool. They got him up there. He made a quick diagnosis and uh, determined that uh, the president was uh, experiencing a major major cerebral hemorrhage stroke. Uh, he immediately called his boss, who was Admiral uh, Ross McIntyre, head of the whole Navy Medical Department, and told him the situation. And here's a little sidelight history that not many people know. The Warm Springs Foundation was a up-to-date surgical center in 1945. They did huh. major orthopedic surgical procedures on the polio patients to straighten broken or twisted limbs and stuff like that. They had state-of-the-art hospital. Uh, they were five physicians there. 
my father, Ed Irwin, the chief surgeon, several Army doctors. Within a half mile, five physicians. The Admiral called a doctor in Atlanta to come down and treat the president. Hmm. Not taken to the hospital, and he was kept in his bedroom uh, until Dr. James Pauling from Atlanta came screaming down in his old Buick to get to the little White House. And he walked in the door, 3.30 in the afternoon. He agreed immediately uh, with Howard Bruin, gave FDR a shot, tried to help him, and he took his last breath right then and there and died at 3.35. Uh, That set uh, in motion a a lot of uh, these foreign laws. They had to tell Ms. Roosevelt. She had to tell her sons. They had to swear in Truman. Uh, Down here, the train that he'd always carried him from place to place was pretty much made up in Atlanta. they had to get the train organized and get it to Warm Springs. Pauling uh, had told them that uh, it's called Patterson's Funeral Home in Atlanta. Uh, Bill Hassett was his uh, press secretary at the time, called Fred Patterson of the Patterson Funeral Home, who we all know of. Patterson said, oh, yeah, we'll, have, we'll come down and get him and bring him up here, and we'll prepare him, and you can pick him up on the train when we come through, or we'll bring him back. And Bill Hassett said, he ain't leaving here. So they came with two caskets and all their equipment, and they prepared uh, the president in his bedroom that night. Ms. Roosevelt and the Admiral and Steve Early arrived by plane at 11 o'clock. They had flown down to Columbus uh, on an Army plane. Uh, Ms. Roosevelt visited with him that night. Didn't visit him. Went saw him. Had him, I guess. Uh, for about five minutes and came out and said, okay, go, go ahead. The next morning, and this is very ironic, he, he would never travel on the 13th. Very superstitious. If he was to leave uh, on the 13th, he would wait till 12.01 the next day to, to, for the train to pull out. So huh. ironically, he was brought home to Hyde Park on Friday the 13th. He would have huh. uh, so my memory here is we lived past the little White House. Uh, the soldiers were all over the place, uh, and you couldn't get past the little White House to go down to Georgia Hall, uh, which is where the famous picture when uh, Ms. Roosevelt said we're going to have him go by, and the patients can all greet him as uh, give him a, fa- a farewell. And this is where the famous picture of. Uh, Graham Jackson, uh, African-American Navy petty officer, playing the accordion, which was uh, with tears running down his face in Life magazine. Anyway, I missed that. Uh, we were able to get down to the town of Home Spring uh, and see the train depart, and which suited me fine because I like trains a whole lot better. Anyway. <laughs> uh, we parked, and we were walking in, and the crowd was thousands of people were already there and mother was trying to hold me up so I could see and uh, Ms. Ozella Bradshaw had a house and it's still there it's up above the highway and she said Ms. Weber bring Toby up here so he can see and we went up and stood on her front porch and I had a panoramic view of everything Uh, the train was parked across the street during the night they had to change cars Mr. Patterson 
wisely had gone down and checked the back door of the private car that the president always used, and it was named the Ferdinand Magellan, measured the door and realized the casket wouldn't go through. So he huh. said to the conductor, well, let's just take out one of the windows and the conductor said, those windows are two inches of armored glass. You can't put them out. So they had to change, and fortunately we had a siding in one spring, so they swapped cars and put another car, which is called the Konya, uh, on the last of the train back, and they took out the back window, and they made the, the Marines during the night came in and built a wooden ramp up to that window. And huh. at the uh, after the train left, that wooden ramp was destroyed by people for souvenirs. Mm-hmm. But anyway, as we stood there on that porch, uh, here came the soldiers and marched in. Here came the hearse, and then some cars behind with Ms. Roosevelt and Fowler and the other people going back. They parked. Uh, the honor guard took out the casket. Well, the thing weighed 600 pounds and he weighed 140. <laughs> they almost dropped it so heavy. Oh. Patterson's people had to help them get it up the ramp and into the window. They put it on a wooden beer that Mr. Alf Moody, the foundation carpenter, had built during the night, and he had it just the right height so the flag-covered casket could be seen by the millions of people as that train slowly went from Warm Springs, Georgia, to Washington, D.C. Wow. After he was loaded, the conductor signaled for the engineers, and there were two two engines in, on the train, both steam locomotives, uh, signal for them to leave, and this I'll never forget. That train drifted silently out of Warm Springs without a sound. Now, anyone who's ever seen a steam engine leave or start up will never forget it. It is a show. They huff and they puff and smoke blasts out of the smokestack. Steam goes all over the place. The whistle's blowing. Uh, The big wheels are clanking and cranking. It is a noisy experience. And these, these trains, these engines just drifted out of town. Because there was just a slight grade, they just let it drift out of town, around the curve, and FDR was gone forever. Wow. Well, what what a story. Uh, How, what about uh, Lucy Mercer Rutherford? Well, uh, how many hours of uh, these sessions do you want to go into? (laughs) Right, right. It's a long, long story. Uh, yeah. All right, I tell you what, Hal. Let's we'll come back with her. And, and anyway, they yeah. were they uh, they w- were not lovers. Uh, possibly they were way back around 1917 or 18. Uh, by the time uh, at the end of the story, they were friends. Had yeah. been kept up through, through the years, and she uh, and FDR were dear dear friends. Okay, very good. Hal, we'll be back in just a minute. Folks, stay with us. Fascinating story. Uh, We'll be back in just a couple minutes. Thank you, Hal. Hi, I'm Dr. Mike Karuchak. Join me and my co-host, Dr. Hal Schertz, as we talk about the topics that doctors talk about amongst themselves, such as Medicare, Obamacare, alternative forms of care, and health information technology. Join us 
every Thursday morning, 8 to 9 a.m. Whether cruising the Strip in a 57 Chevy or taking the family on a vacation in a 71 Oldsmobile Vista Cruiser, you need to tune in to Classic Cars with Steve Ronaldo and Jim Weber every Saturday from 8 to 9 a.m. on AmericasWebRadio.com. If you live to serve and want to make an even bigger difference, consider joining the U.S. Army. With training in fields like medical care, linguistics, and engineering, an Army career can amplify your efforts with humanitarian opportunities all over the world. Plus, you'll receive competitive pay and incredible benefits, so you'll be taken care of, too. Learn more at GoArmy.com. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Okay, we're back with uh, Dr. Hal Raper. Uh, Hal, uh, after Warm Springs, you went into the Navy. Uh, where were you stationed? What did you do? Well, um, I, I had grown up in the health field and had become interested in mechanical things, so I decided that I would go to dental school and not follow my, fa- follow my father into medicine. So uh, I went to Emory and graduated uh, from Emory Dental School in 1963 and uh, was immediately commissioned as a, a lieutenant in the Dental Corps, and was ordered to San Diego, California, where I spent a year uh, with the United States Marines at the Marine Recruit Depot, which is the same thing as Paris Island, except it was on the West Coast. Uh, I had a little bit better deal than the recruits, I think. <laughs> and after a year there, I was ordered to the aircraft carrier USS Hornet, and it's number 12. Uh, and by, it was one of the World War II carriers, not one of the originals. It was the second Hornet in World War II. The first Hornet in World War II was the famous one that launched the Doolittle Raids. So right. I was uh, named after that ship lost down in the Santa Cruz Islands in 42. Uh, they renamed this next one Hornet. So I was on the second Hornet from the war. By the time I came along in 1964, it had been converted uh to use for anti-submarine warfare. Uh, main reason is that it still had the hydraulic catapults and uh, couldn't launch the big uh, jet planes that you had to have the steam catapults for. So my job was to go out and search uh, for submarines. We carried uh, a couple of squadrons of the what's called an S-2 uh, airplane. It was a big patrol propeller-driven plane that had uh, all kinds of electronic gear that would go out and search for um, submarines and then drop ordnance on the submarines if they happened to find them. Also had a uh, couple of squadrons of helicopters that uh, were used for anti-submarine warfare, too. Um, so we were uh, went through a period in the shipyard in San Francisco, which was not a bad place to be. Uh, but then we were ordered out in 1965 to Vietnam. And so we spent uh, the next uh, nine months uh, over in the Western Pacific, and we'd go to Vietnam and for a couple of sea periods or a month or so, and then go somewhere else and then go back down to the combat area. Our mission down there was combat support. Our patrol planes uh, patrol the area to look for uh, submarines, and there weren't any, so that wasn't a big issue, but other things. And then our helicopters were used for... Um, search and rescue, and uh, we did have uh, one squadron of marine jets, the little, the little A-4 Skyhawks, that's the only ones that mm-hmm. we could launch, and they transferred them over uh, to 
another ship while we were down there. So uh, we did, uh, unfortunately, uh, in Vietnam, lose one airplane. It was one of our patrol S-2s, and it uh, had a crew of four, two uh, pilots and two crewmen, and the thing went off, and they think that it strayed over Hanayan Island, and, and the Red Chinese shot it down. Uh, <laughs> no trace of it was ever found, and the, uh, the, the crew was never in prison, so... I don't know what happened to them. I'm not sure anybody does. Other than that, we had a very safe cruise. Uh, anytime you're on a carrier, they're dangerous uh, places. They're full of aviation fuel and other kinds of fuel, nuclear weapons, and things can happen. But we we had a very safe cruise. No, had no tragedies on our ship at all. And uh, uh, as far as I was concerned, it was just a... Uh, Routine uh, doing dentistry every day, and uh, it was a great experience, and I, I absolutely loved my ship and loved that uh, being a part of the ship's company. And even though you're a dental officer, uh, you're also a division officer, and uh, you're part of ship's company. Uh, I had to man a battle dressing station, so and during what's called general quarters, as you Navy guys know, they close the ship up so that it's watertight so you take a, a hit one place that it doesn't go like the Titanic and just sink right away. Uh, <laughs> you can close the compartments off and, and by the big watertight door. So uh, each part of the ship had its own battle dressing station. So all the medical and dental per- personnel had their uh, a battle station and that was a dressing station. So I, mine was down with the engines and engine rooms, and I, I like that because I love the old uh, engines. So, Did you? Uh, yeah. Kept it the uh, whole time. We, uh, that was it, that, that, now, you stayed, up, you, you stayed on a carrier for quite a while. Uh, uh, two years. I was born two, two years. years. Uh-huh. Wow. 64 to 66. Let me ask you this. What was your funniest experience? Uh, I, well, I, I'll tell you, uh, well, the most unusual experience, I think, was off the coast of California. Uh, and the, what happened is that uh, the pilots that were reserves had to do a certain number of uh, carrier landings uh, to keep their qualifications. And so when the reserves came along, you never knew what was going to happen. Because they were uh, <laughs> in much practice. Well, one of those big planes, and it was the, S- the S-2, uh, and that big place probably weighed 20,000 pounds. He caught the hook, you know, they had the hook that catches that cable, and that's what stops him. Well, this guy didn't know he was on the hook, and he gunned it. Well, the cable held, and he proceeded to be like a slingshot. It pulled him back, <laughs> and over the side, that airplane went. So we're cruising along in the Pacific Ocean with an S-2 airplane dangling off the side of the ship. I've got some pictures of that <laughs> That is a funny experience. They, none of the guys were hurt. They just, uh, I think they just got out and jumped in the water and they picked them up. Uh, and so they, the, the crane, they have a crane thing, but it was strong enough to pull that thing up. And so they had the, uh, they, uh, it's what is a seal now, but they call them underwater demolition guy. The UDT guy came out there and put some sort of charge on that cable and blew it up. And, down in the ocean with that airplane, so somewhere off San Clemente, there's a perfect ST, 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 <laughs> WF 
uh, down in the water. Uh, you got time for one more? Sure, go ahead. I don't know if you want to put this. It's a little off color, but not bad. Uh, during uh, times we were in port, we would have open house and, and open it up to the public, and people would come to the ship. And of course, you'd have all the planes down there open, and pilots standing there, and they were having a good time impressing all the young girls and stuff like that. Well, I, I, one of the pilots was standing was inside the helicopter. And a, uh, a young guy came along with several friends of his, and he was the leader of the gang. And so he brought him into the helicopter, and he started to spiel like he might as a flight attendant. Oh, you know, take your seats, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, look for the emergency room. Gate it maybe four or five. And he was speaking into a, 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 a tube, sort of a funnel-looking thing that... Uh, was attached to a hose, and he had it right up to his mouth, like I have this, and he's spitting into it. And so he got through his stuff, and they started to leave, and, and he just asked the pilot, said, well, what is that thing? And, and the pilot said, sir, it's a relief tube. And the <laughs> guy looked at him, and he said, well, what do you do with it? He said, you pee in it. <laughs> that was sure a shock to the guy. <laughs> yes, it was. <laughs> so anyway, that was a funny story, but uh, we we made the best that we could. We had some great times in port and stuff like that, uh, and had wonderful uh, people to serve with. So I was just very very fortunate, very pleased. But I did love like it. my my ship is now it is a, a museum. Uh, it's been preserved, and it is like the uh, the Yorktown over in Charleston. Uh, it's in Alameda, California. Anybody's out in Alameda, they can visit the Hornet. Uh, it's across the bay, unfortunately, from San Francisco, so it's a little hard to get to. But, uh, it's, uh, there are three, you have three of these, uh, they call them Essex class carriers. The Intrepid is up in New York, uh, Yorktown's in Charleston, Hornet's in Alameda, and the, uh, Lexington's over in Corpus Christi, Texas. Wow. I would like to see those. You returned to Atlanta and practiced dentistry for 45 years, Hal. What have right. you done in retirement? What have you done in retirement? Well, uh, done a lot of the FDR stuff. Uh, done a lot of volunteer work, as I said, with uh, both the American Legion and uh, Chastain Park. And then, since I, I love the uh, sea so much, I am a, uh, a crew member on... A uh, World War II historic ship called uh, the SS John W. Brown. It is a Liberty ship and one of the last that are only two that are remaining out of 2,700 of them that were built during World War II. Uh, and it is the only ship, this World War II vintage major ship on the whole East Coast that still operates. This huh. thing has a steam plant. And we have cruises up and down the Chesapeake Bay, uh, up until last year anyway, uh, where we call it historic cruises and, and, uh, people come aboard and they get a tour of the ship. Uh, some of the fellows who have these antique airplanes come out and Jap Zeros attack us and Navy <laughs> F4s chase them off. And even there's a, a, a big B-17 that flies overhead and we shoot the, uh, those, uh, 20 millimeter machine guns at them and kids go crazy when they hit it. Uh, 
And so if you have to go down and watch the big engine turning over, it is a it's a wonderful uh, wonderful day experience. And I have thoroughly enjoyed being part of it. And and actually, probably one of the few people in North Carolina who has uh, merchant marine credentials. I am officially <laughs> a, a oiler. <laughs> it's well, next time that thing the goes out, yeah, Al, next time that thing goes out, you let me know. I'm going to be down there and going out with you. That'd be a great story, and I'd love to do that. Uh, well, my we, goodness we gracious! Shooting for September the 11th, if everything settles down. All right, that's great. And you know, a lot of the guys said those Liberty ships were put together with chewing gum and band aids. <laughs> well, I ask when these Navy guys say. Uh, I was on a tin can talking about destroyers. Uh, yeah. Lipstick for tin cans. You stand <laughs> in the engine room and the engine is next to the boilers, which you never have in the Navy. Plus, the Navy has two or three hulls and armored plates and stuff. There's one piece of steel between yourself and Davy Jones when you're down there, and that's a piece of three quarter inch rusty metal. <laughs> that's it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we're going. They didn't even break apart in big ways. <laughs> <laughs> we are, how we're going to our last break. Uh, when we get back, uh, you have always mentioned that uh, Liberty Ships won the war, and I want you to explain that when we come back. Folks, we'll be back in just a couple minutes. Stand by. Hello, my name is Rick White, and I'm the director of the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame. I want to encourage all Georgia veterans to consider being nominated to the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame. And if you are a Georgia veteran, and the definition of a Georgia veteran is either you were born in the state of Georgia, or you've lived here 10 years, or you were raised your right hand and joined the military in this state, you are considered a Georgia veteran. For further information, go to www.gmbhof.org, or you can contact me at 678-427-0915. We'd love to have your nomination for the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame. Thank you so much. Hi, this is Rocky Blair, former four-time Super Bowl champion with the Pittsburgh Steelers and Vietnam veteran. As a board member, I'd like to talk to you about Warriors to Citizen, a nonprofit organization that helps American heroes, soldiers, police, fire, EMT, and their families recover from the psychological harm caused by career-induced stress. Over the last 20 years, broken relationships have been a major causal factor for the highest document divorce rate and resulting suicides in this population. This program, from Warriors to Citizen, is delivered free to families by professionals, all whom served in uniform and understand the needs to be addressed. I ask for your support. So please, go to our website, warriorstocitizen.org, and find out how you can help, either by making a donation or sharing this information with an American hero that you may know. And thank you. If you live to serve and want to make an even bigger difference, consider joining the U.S. Army. With training in fields like medical care, linguistics, and engineering, an Army career can amplify your efforts with humanitarian opportunities all over the world. Plus, you'll receive competitive pay and incredible benefits, so you'll be taken care of, too. Learn more at GoArmy.com. This is America's Web Radio. Would you like to have a show, talk about your business, or express your opinion on America's Web Radio? Just email gm at americaswebradio.com and we'll get back to you. Thank you.
All right, folks, we're back with Dr. Hal Raper. Um, I did not know that he was a active crew member on a World War II Liberty ship that's uh, still in operation, one of two of the 2,700 built during the war. Uh, Hal, you said that the Liberty ships won the war. Explain that. Okay, well, uh, the Liberty ship program began in September of 1941 when FDR started the thing by launching the first one, and it was launched in Baltimore, uh, and it was called the Patrick Henry, so that's where the Liberty Park came from. Uh, but why did they win the war? Well, pretty easy. America was the arsenal of democracy, as we know. We were also the, uh, the supplier for every single thing that they, they were used in the war, for the most part. The airplanes, the ammunition, the clothes, the soldiers, well, it was all sitting here. It had to get over there. And most of the supplies and most every single thing that went over to Europe and into the Pacific went in the bellies of these uh, slow-moving, clanking old uh, Liberty ships. And, uh, for instance, in Russia alone, we carried something like 11,000 airplanes, a billion rounds of ammunition, a million shoes, 1,900 steam locomotives, hundreds of jeeps, tanks, and trucks, all up to, to, to Murmansk, Russia, uh, through the ice and freezing cold of the North Atlantic and past all the German submarines and wolf packs and airplanes uh, that they had. It was uh, an incredible uh, operation. But the reason that I say we won the war is those ships brought the soldiers and the stuff over there to where it was needed. Uh, we lost about 700 of those ships. About 7,000 uh, sailors and, uh, were lost, which is as many as the Marines on Iwo Jima. And those yeah. guys... Will never come home to a pretty grave there in the out of Davy Jones forever. Yeah. And for many years they weren't even recognized with VA benefits because they were not in the Navy. They were in the Mercy Marine. The uh, those ships carried a Navy crew, and the Navy crew was to man the weapons only. Our ship has a five mm, a five inch thirty eight on the stern, uh, and uh, six of the uh, uh, four-inch uh, rapid-fire machine guns, and then I uh, think about six of the 20 millimeters. So the, wow. they had about 40 naval personnel, and they manned the weapons, and the uh, Marine guys, who civilians uh, basically, uh, ran the ship. I know that during the war, people don't know this, the Marines, percentage-wise, had the uh, largest casualty rate. God bless the United States Marine Corps. But the second largest loss of life, percentage-wise, was the Merchant Marines. Um, they paid a terrible price. And I know I was reading on one uh, ship that was in Russia in, in a harbor, and it just sank. All of a sudden, it just went down, and they don't even know why. Um, yep. they, they were just so hastily constructed, and they uh, they didn't have watertight integrity, which is, you know, closing off those big gates and doors like the Navy ships do. So if you got a hole in one place, it was pretty much going to sink. 
I mean, there, there were times when, when the, the darn things uh, in heavy weather just fell apart. They yeah. literally came apart in the midsection. And uh, they, they were just uh, so slow. They were sitting ducks for German submarines. They loved them because they didn't go at about six knots. Uh, wow. It was a very dangerous job uh, in... You, your chances for survival were not very good because they would go down in three or four minutes. You took a hit, a, a torpedo hit, and that thing would sink within four minutes. Wow. Those guys would wear, uh, night and day would wear this big rubber suit thing that was to protect them from the freezing water, uh, and give them some flotation, and they'd sleep in that thing. It was, it, it, a very, very dangerous job, and, and you never saw the enemy coming. You never knew what was going to happen. That, that's amazing. I know I, the story escapes me, the name of the ship, but there was one Liberty ship that engaged a German raider that was heavily armed, and they fought to a standstill. Uh, very brave men that, that manned those guns on those Liberty ships. Um, they are pretty much sitting targets, too, but God bless them. The greatest generation, Hal, we'll never see their likes again, will we? I agree with you there. You're sure enough right. Uh, yeah. Down at Warm Springs, there's an, another uh, thing that's going on that, that our listeners might be interested in. The Rotary Club has uh, has completed a, a wonderful uh, museum that is uh, down at the swimming pools, and the swimming pools are what brought FDR to Warm Springs. And they are also where the Warm Springs are. Uh, and the Rotary Club has finished up this museum. Sadly, the pools are in terrible shape. We have a, a campaign going now to try to raise the funds to restore the pools. They won't even hold water. Uh, huh. So uh, we, we want to get those things back so that people can enjoy them and actually put water in them. And uh, when they were functional, several Times a year, we would open them up, and people could go actually swim in the warm waters. Uh, hmm. Otherwise, we'd keep it open, and you could put your hand in the water that comes out of the springs. But uh, that's all had to close because of the deter- deterioration of the, the springs themselves. So, uh, but anyhow, anybody's down there uh, visiting the little White House, be sure to see uh, the new Rotary Museum down the swimming pools. Warm Springs is a great tourist. Uh, it's only 70 miles from here, from Atlanta. Uh, we've got some great little restaurants there, a wonderful place called the Bullock House. It's got the best fried chicken around. And then around <laughs> the corner from the Bullock House is a, a barbecue stand that you wouldn't even notice if you didn't know about it. And it's got the most fabulous barbecue around. Yeah. Mac Barbecue. It's across from the Baptist Church. So if anybody goes to the little dumpy looking place, uh, it's got the best barbecue around. So, uh, you are, you, so you made me hungry, Hal. Huh? I said you've made me hungry. <laughs> yeah. Oh, Warm Springs is a feeder. Uh, only 13 miles from Callaway Gardens and a beautiful drive across uh, Pine Mountain, the Roosevelt State Park. And there is uh, his favorite picnic spot uh, is a place called Dallas Knob, and it's the highest point on Pine Mountain. And it overlooks huh. this beautiful valley. And there's a wonderful bronze statue of FDR sitting on his car seat uh, as he did when he would go up there and picnic. 
and you can sit beside him and put your hand around him and get your picture made and see the beautiful view of his favorite picnic place in Georgia. I'll be doggone. Uh, yeah. So now, here, here's a, a, several artifacts are there at Warm Springs, including his car. Is that correct? Oh, yes. His, his uh, little Ford, four-door convertible uh, with the hand controls. It was built by a local uh, mechanic so that he could drive that car uh, without the use of his legs. Huh. And he did love to drive that car. And he delighted in uh, having races with the Secret Service to try to get away from him. <laughs> and, he, and he could do it. He knew all the old back roads, and they didn't. Uh, and he was a crazy driver. People would ride with him and say, oh, never again. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, he loved to do that. Uh, and there's another vehicle there that uh, was a, a, a one of the only Willis, uh, the people who made the Jeeps. Uh, convertible that was given to him, and uh, it's just a little fine house. And he also owned a stagecoach, Pete. Owned a I stage. didn't know that. Yeah, it's, it's a fabulous stagecoach, just like you see in the cowboy movies, uh, on the Wells Fargo logo. Uh, it's in the museum, and the reason he owned it is when he bought the old resort, the thing was on the porch of the inn, because back in the early days, it had been used to the railroad station and uh, other places and bring people back to the uh, old hotel. And they kept the thing, and uh, so it was restored, and, and he did own a stagecoach, although he never rode in it. But every uh, time he would win an election, they'd get the stagecoach out and decorate it and parade it around with victory parades for FDR. So you can <laughs> see the, so the stagecoach and two cars that belong to him. That's very interesting. I, I I need to get back down there. I haven't been down there in a lot of years. Now you're still very much involved. You still dress up like FDR down in the White House. Well, uh, I do sometimes. I most of the time I just get, when I go down there get tours, and I do serve on the uh, state advisory board for the little White House, and uh, I have enjoyed doing that for the last ten years or so. Uh, right, very good. Kind of help and support. Let me ask you this about the Warm Springs. What makes them warm? Where, where does it originate from, the, the springs itself? Do they know? Well, that's a great question, Pete. Uh, the Pine Mountain is geologically a, a little unusual. It's the last real bump in the whole Appalachian chain of mountains. Uh, it runs from about the Chattahoochee River across uh, middle Georgia there over to uh, just past the Flint. Uh, the highest point is 1,395 feet above sea level, and that's pretty high, higher than Atlanta. Uh, mm-hmm. And after you get down Pine Mountain, you smell a little bump or so, and then it's pretty much just rolling hills and flat to the ocean. Uh, so the springs are at the base of the Pine Mountain. And what happens is the rain drops on the top of the mountain, and just due to the faults in the earth, it goes down just like out in uh, Yellowstone and places down uh, 3,800 feet into the ground where the ground is warm and it hits water and it bubbles up the base of the mountain. Uh, and it is a big bubbling spring. It, it produces 800 gallons of water a minute and the temperature all year round is around 88 degrees Fahrenheit. So huh. it provides So the, when the pools are open, the water's not saved. It just comes in the pool and goes out. It circulates right through. 
and the state of Georgia, now the old Polio Foundation, it is a rehabilitation center and a school for handicapped people. And it, it does a great job, the school does, in putting uh, people back to work, teachers and trades and uh, computers and stuff, and uh, puts people back to work. And so it's supported by Georgia tax dollars and uh, has, has been just a real great thing. And this is uh, still probably the largest employer, by far the largest employer in Warm Springs. But it's a great thing, and, and there you can still see uh, the the facility that FDR started, a uh, beautiful little chapel and the famous Georgia Hall with the pictures that uh, show him coming by in his purse and stuff. Uh, so there's a lot to see there at Warm Springs uh, okay, when you go down and, and walk around. That is a, That was a cute story about him. Uh, uh, trying to outrun his Secret Service. I think if Trump or Biden had tried that, the Secret Service would have got fairly well angered in these days and times. (laughs) Well, I think they they had some little conflicts, but he had a wonderful relationship with uh, the Secret Service. The great book by Mike Riley, who uh, had his his, own. Hal, this has been a great interview, very informative. We're out of time. Thank you so much for being on the program, and I'll be seeing you soon. Going to have up have you up at the roundtable talk about the Liberty Ships. How about that? That sounds great, Pete, and I always enjoy being with you, and thank you so much for uh, your support and help go. and for recognizing us. Go. Okay, thank you. thank you, sir. Thanks for joining You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.